Welcome to the Matthew Moran Podcast. Here you will find a series of in-depth conversations with the world's best nature photographers, filmmakers, conservationists, editors, writers, and publishers. You will get an insight into the lives of creative professionals and industry experts. It is a chance to hear their stories, personal journeys, and how they carve a niche to make a living. The podcast focuses on the role that photography and filmmaking plays in helping to raise awareness about the global plight of species. And despite the depressing statistics, we look for solutions of what we can all do to contribute to conservation. All my guests give up their precious time and are incredibly generous in spirit. So this is my chance to share these conversations with you, to sit back, relax, and enjoy. This week, my guest is Neil Aldridge. Neil is a photographer, filmmaker, conservationist, lecturer, qualified field guide, and his work has been published worldwide. On top of this, he is also a trustee of two wildlife charities, and his list of awards in major international competitions over the last 10 years is enviable. Neil has won highly commended awards in the Wildlife Photographer of the Year. He was the grand title winner in the European Wildlife Photographer of the Year and also won the coveted Environment Singles category in the World Press Photo Awards. But Neil is not one to dwell on his successes and his focus remains purely on raising awareness about the plight of species through film, photography, and presenting his work and experiences to audiences worldwide. In the first of another two-part podcast, Neil talks candidly about the industry, the egos, the ethics, and with so many different approaches to photography, we discuss what being a professional in the current climate really means. Be sure to listen right through to the end. As new for the podcast this month, I'll be making some recommendations of great organizations to follow, competitions to enter, people to look out for, and who is doing great work in the field of natural history. Don't forget to review the podcast on iTunes and share it with your community really helps us to get these stories out there. So without further delay, here's part one. Neil, welcome. Thank you very much. Welcome to Tottenham. And uh, (laughs) yeah, I really appreciate uh, you coming here. You've been someone on my list uh, for for a long time. So um, I appreciate it. Pleasure. I'm not going to... I know you're not here to completely sugarcoat my ego. You did come to <laughs> London for other other meetings, which also uh, sound uh, pretty exciting. But yeah, we've got you here, and so yeah, thank uh, you for having me. It's going to be really great to hear a little bit about your journey um, in photography, and I know you're doing more filmmaking now, but um, also get your thoughts on conservation and uh, other matters around that. Um, yeah. You know, some of the conversations we've already had have, have been really yes. exciting. So to elaborate on that, it's going to be really, really good fun. So thanks so much. Pleasure. Um, first of all, I wanted to talk to you. I like kind of finding out what you're doing currently. You've mentioned doing some filming with, with wild screen. So can you yeah. tell us a little bit about um, that? So filming and photography, but predominantly filming um, for... So delivering a commission for Wildscreen, uh, who are who in turn being commissioned by a, um, a sort of collaborative conservation um, project called Back from the Brink. Back from the Brink is funded by uh, lottery funding, heritage lottery funding, and it, it's 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 for focusing only on uh, English species and habitats. Um, but the great thing is that just you know for so long in conservation we've seen 
uh, efforts being made in isolation. And the great thing about Back from the Brink is it's a true collaborative effort. Uh, so you've got seven of the UK's leading conservation organisations, all with their sort of their, their sort of respective areas of uh, of expertise and influence coming together. And as with a lot of these projects now, which are uh, funded by lottery funding uh, and external funding, th- there is also the the understanding that look, you can do all this conservation work in isolation, and obviously a lot of the, the money. Most of the money going into Back from the Brink is going on to frontline conservation efforts, of course, um, saving these species. And, um, the project is, itself is, is aiming to save England's most endangered species and habitats. Uh, but there is there is now so often this 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 portion of the budget has to be put across to uh, to engagement work. So it's great saving this stuff, but how are you going to tell people about it? How are you going to tell people that? this random species that they didn't even know existed is slipping away before they even figured out that they could save it, uh, that they could be part of it, that it was on their doorstep. Uh, so so that's where Wild Screen have come in. Um, so we sat down uh, last year in 2019 and they said, look, we've got this number of uh, films that need making um, and uh, all the, the the back from the brink individual projects on a whole array of species, some incredible species, and some species that we we hadn't even heard of. And you know, those of us in the world of wildlife, we think we know <laughs> know what we're talking about. Uh, there are some things we hadn't didn't even know existed, uh, and we're right on our doorstep, and we're at risk of slipping away. And um, so I've been fortunate enough to work with the Wild Screen team, who I have really good uh, working relationship with. I've enjoyed working with them um, over the last couple of years on other projects. And also Alex Hyde, who's a fantastic photographer based here in the UK, one of one of the country's leading photographers, but I think also one of the leading minds as well. Um, you know, he's uh, just knows what he's. Uh, has a very sort of clear vision about what he wants to uh, achieve photographically, but also uh, spends a lot of time sort of giving back as well, teaching people, and and uh, just a real pleasure to work alongside him. But um, for the filming, um, yeah, I, I basically put together a small team. Wild Screen sort of allowed me to basically pick my crew, as it were, <laughs> and that involved uh, bringing in uh, a whole host of um, uh, sort of assistants and other uh, camera operators, sound operators, editors. So I uh, brought in um, Anna Roberts, who's one of my colleagues at Falmouth University, brought her in as a consultant director on, on it as well, because although... Uh, although I was producing and, and shooting the films, certainly when I'm when I'm out shooting in the field and she's with me, I, I, I'd rather she was directing if we're working with a presenter. I don't want to be filming and having to direct as well if I could have her expert influence. But also as well, it's quite important sometimes when you've shot something to kind of take yourself out of the editing process. I was allowing Anna to work with Tom Campbell, our, uh, our editor, um we all need good editors exactly exactly and um so the, the two of them have worked worked wonders in the editing process but you know it wouldn't have been possible without people like Tierney lloyd um rose summers joe gray um austin ferguson irene mendes cruz who've all come come along and, and sort of helped uh in terms of filming uh photographing as well and also um uh sound recording uh so you know, there's been there's been a real um, sort of team effort 
there to to bring these films uh, 21 of them by the end well you know, we're still shooting them but 21 of them in the end um, and I worked with some fantastic presenters along the way to kind of interpret what we're trying to say as well so there's been a real mix I, I am conscious of these things um, and the way I try to operate I'm very um, very aware and this isn't through any sort of forced decision making um, but what's great is it's been a truly kind of um, uh, just diverse team. What I mean by that is you've got people from all different sort of, uh, backgrounds. It's an equal gender mix, um, but not because it's be- not by design, just purely because of just people we want to work with, people who we respect, um, and, and, and certainly embracing also emerging talent, people who we want to give opportunities to as well. And it's, it's been it's been great to be able to work with uh, with a, just a real mix of people. That sounds amazing. And it's so much more about the content and the end game, yeah. but it's about a lot of what we've already been talking about, relationship building. 100%. <clears throat> yeah. Being in a team, collaborating, and, you know, in the end you get a, you know, a, a result that's uh, more fruitful. Absolutely. And we um, the collaboration side as well has been essential with the, with all the, the the specialists working on these species and these habitats, because a lot of these species can't be um, accessed without licenses from from the government, because um, the, that they are that endangered that you need to have specialists uh, working alongside you there with you when you're trying to film these things, and of course as well that adds the the complexity which. I think a lot of people probably on face value don't appreciate, but a lot, a lot of when when we see uh, sequences around plants, for example, uh, on some of our bigger natural history films, a lot of them are shot in studios, um, and uh, or even some of your smaller species, which can be kind of well managed in in a certain way to be able to create a certain creative look. Um, we couldn't do any of that, and wouldn't even dream of doing <laughs> it. Uh, but we weren't removing anything from. You know, from their natural environment, we were shooting everything in situ, and that obviously presented all kinds of challenges. But there was a, it was so exciting from a challenge uh, perspective. Just how do we light this? How do we bring camera movement into it? How do we make this small plant seem exciting and engaging and sexy to people? To how do we how do we create empathy in our audience that so that they want to actually uh, invest in saving the species? And so, that was going to be my next question, really, about you know how do you make this sexy? Because you know we all know that yeah. you know, the British British wildlife is in you know a pretty perilous state. I mean, yeah. of course, all wildlife is, but you know we are inundated with beautifully made, wonderful documentaries. You know about continents from far flung places, mm. sexy species. You know this is UK yeah. based. Yeah. People want to spend thousands of pounds, dollars going all over the world to, to yeah. see exotic stuff. And, and it's your job to make uh-huh. uh, stuff on our lands really, you know, looking, looking exotic and looking interesting. And is this, has this been part of the MO for what you're doing? Kind of. Um, it's also a, a lot of, uh, that was just what I wanted to, to, to bring to it really. I've kind of felt that, um, that's, Back from the brick needed, uh, ideally, as we needed to shoot a lot of original, as much original content as we could. And we've hardly, I think, we've bought in two clips for one film, and that's it. Um, I mean, the rest of it is literally shot. Well, everything is shot. You know, I'm going to say 99.999% of yeah. it has been is, is original footage. 
um, because of, we needed to control how it was shot, the the ethics and everything else around it. But doing that, yeah, created that challenge and and um, and that's yeah, part of it is is down to how I wanted to 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 shoot it. So um, creating sequences that were going to make people go, wow, look at that, that's great, and hey, wow, that's here in the UK, that's under our feet, that's next door that's you know in a, in a nature reserve that's down the road from me let's go and find this thing let's go look closer at our nature that's that's on our doorstep um some of it was by complete luck you know the the um narrow-headed ant for example is one one species i just fell, absolutely fell in love with um and it's it exists in england in the corner of one nature reserve in devon and I say not even on a nature reserve, in the corner of one nature reserve, literally in like a, a small patch of heath. And is it a, is it an endemic species? Or? Um, I'm not sure of its absolute full range. It is in there is also a small population in Scotland as well. Okay. Weirdly enough, two completely separate populations <laughs> in, here in the UK. Um, I'm not sure, and I've I've not been able to find absolute definite information on its on its on its full reach, but. It is it is partly in Scotland as well, but again, you know, a small amount up in up in the Kangles, um, in the, in the Highlands. But I managed to film a, um, a sequence of one ant showing an awareness of the threat of a spider uh, that had caught three of its uh, three of its 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 mates, three of its fellow ants in a, in the in the web, and this ant was trying to cut the spider's web um and had rushed in to chase the spider off and then was investigating the uh these ants what was going on. and i think we we have an understanding of ants that and, and other invertebrates as well they give off a pheromone when they're in trouble so potentially it was the pheromone that attracted the ant in the first place but this wasn't done with four or five ants and creatively stage managed to make it look like one ant this was one ant that just that was i mean i know the Particularly, the biologists amongst us will be cringing at me saying that um, <laughs> that it was. I wouldn't want to anthropomorphize, but it was genuinely, as far as I was concerned, it was showing that level of bravery and that awareness beyond itself um, to 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 go in and confront the spider, and then to try and remove the threat by snipping the uh, the, the threat. So it was it was incredible to see something like that. But I hadn't planned to go and shoot that. All all I knew is that these ants had this relationship with these. Um, uh, what are they called? Um, aphids. Sorry, yeah. yeah. Um, with with aphids, and they're milking the aphids, and that's what I'd gone to film. But then happened across this other behaviour, which was amazing to watch. But you 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 get to witness that, and you get to capture that when you spend enough time in nature. Um, you know, there there are there are other plenty of other examples, other species as well. Which just I had the opportunity to film some incredible sequences um which i mean i wish i could have spent longer on but again it's you know it's as it's a conservation project at the end of the day you know an endless time and money to to, to keep going back as long as many times as you want but hopefully i i hope i've uh, the feeling is that i've done justice to what i what i set out to film but um but come back to answer your question the the it was yeah that that was certainly my my driver was to capture behavior sequences show show these these subjects um in ways that people haven't seen them before um and then the other side of it came down to to sort of the edit so uh the work that anna and tom were able to do together in terms of 
it's it's everything down to sort of creating the, the right music, the right mood and feel through uh, how the shots are edited together. So, and telling the um, whole narrative of the story, yeah, isn't and that just such a wonderful mm. thing? And it does come up so much, whether it's you know stills or moving image, that you have this idea in your head when you're setting out on a on a project to photograph whatever it is. And I think that's a great thing. It's a really good practice to plan and to visualize. And I think it makes, you know, your senses more heightened and your you can react more quickly. But it's the unplanned that really mm. is 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 the joy of it. And you know, we've we we will get onto the kind of the money side of things, but no money can buy that experience. You know, when you're out there and because it can't be controlled there's all sorts of stuff and most of the time it's not amazing stuff is happening but when the amazing stuff does happen and you can react and capture it in a way to tell a good story you're the feeling you get is can't be beaten no absolutely and we uh there, there were a, a number of moments like that throughout the um throughout the the project um the uh, gray long-eared bats for example um you know we we knew that they were roosting in one building. There was, they only knew of eight roost sites in the whole of England. Um, so this, you know, this bat is incredibly rare, and the chance of filming it—I mean, it basically it had hardly been filmed ever before in the UK. Um, and also, we couldn't film it using blinding lights. We had to film it in infrared. It's called the whistling bat. It doesn't make a noise. Um, <laughs> it flies incredibly quickly, too quickly for my camera chaps, by as, as I then found out. Um, but the challenge was 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 huge, um, and I I wanted to create this whole um, sequence of them leaving the roost and then going hunting. We didn't capture the hunting sequence; that's another story altogether. <laughs> um, but uh, but to be able to 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 capture them in in infrared, uh, so we're not impacting on them. Um, you know, they're not leaving the dark safety of their roost yeah. and coming out and being blinded by our lights and us. You know, getting the shots we wanted in full tech color, you know, it's, yeah. it's effectively in in black and white because of the but infrared lighting. I think that lighting. footage has an impact. It looks nice, and it's yeah. but it's I, I like it. But as far as I'm concerned, as well, you know, it also it just reiterates how you know the the, the values we we then kept at the heart of our our project as our, as, as a as a crew. Um, but to be able to then capture what seems to be regarded as the best footage of grey long-eared bats that's been ever been filmed um you know we didn't go into that expecting it but that was again it was because of the investment we made as a as a team as a crew and working alongside the specialist that's what came out of it because we we put the time in and it was many many long nights and um stood out uh waiting for them to emerge um and shooting from different angles to develop the, the sequence um, and then once we'd got that footage, then the the work of the edits to try and build the uh, the expectation and the, the anticipation in the in the final film, and what people will hopefully see when they when they when they watch the final film is is that journey that Sophie, the presenter, has has gone along on and telling the story of the bats, and then finally being able to actually see these bats. Although, like I said, we had planned to try and film the bats hunting, and um, spent many nights uh joe <laughs> and rose and myself out in fields on the farm again flooding a, a field with infrared light trying to film the bats and we thought we'd done it one night and joe said neil neil i think i think we've got the bats i think and so I ran across to the camera and he looked back at the footage and what looked like this fantastic shot of this bat flying through frame and then we looked closer and realized it was a barn owl <laughs> i've never been more annoyed at seeing a barn owl before and 
you know, in hindsight, you shouldn't be that upset. You've just filmed a barn owl flying in slow motion, hunting in yeah. the middle of the night in infrared, you know, without knowing you're there. Um, and it's just, well, I say it was completely useless to us. It, it, it was, but at the same time, you know, after a while, you kind of realize the joy of watching that footage back. But God, I wish it was a bat. But, yeah. Uh, but that was, that's, yeah, there were so many situations like that throughout the project, which have been rewarding for us, but hopefully will be even more so for people who, again, can kind of share, I guess, the joy that we had of seeing these species for the first time, because so many of these topics that, we, that we've covered um, were new to us. Yeah. And that's why there were new challenges. You're thinking, well, okay, I've never filmed <laughs> bats in, at night. Okay, what cameras are we going to need? What lighting are we going to need? Okay, filming underwater in dank ponds. Right, let's get some um some some you know, macro lenses un underwater in a in, in in freshwater ponds in sand dunes in in sefton coast to fill tadpoles um you know, we're doing so many different different things but the excitement i'm hoping really comes across in the final that's films. great it sounds like it really will and i think hearing you talk about those impossible situations mm. dank water you know filming bats at night and and like you say on limited budget so you can't just spend every hour that you've got out there you've got you know other things to do that the, all you need is just one little bit of hope and it's then completely worth it and also what you need to do is just do it you know yeah. and I think that's something that comes up quite a lot with people wanting yeah. to get into this field is you just have to start and you yeah. just have to do it and you have to make just get out there make you know it's 99% mm. failure isn't it really yeah. and and yeah. that 1% is and sometimes it. you found that's that's like I said we didn't get that full sequence I had in my head for the bats we tried and tried and tried um, there are other things we wanted to try and film we just didn't get Sometimes it's the weather against you. Sometimes animals just don't turn up. Other times it's you know equipment or whatever it might be. Um, but you've just you've got to try and you've got to get out there. And and I think what I'm sort of picking up actually is um, as almost cameras and, and all the equipment around around cameras and, and photography and filmmaking get smarter and smarter, and we get camera traps and and lighting and all these things that allow us to to capture. Uh, incredible engaging footage and, and and photographs it's almost like the field time is reducing i think uh, for a lot of people just thinking well okay it's, it's it's yeah but it's easy to do that it's easy to do this and 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 sort of not investing the time and actually it's to to get that's even just a good camera trap photograph it takes a huge amount of investment of of, of, yeah. of time it's it might be easy to get a camera trap photograph yes but to get to the shot that you had in mind when you when you kind of pre-plan it get the lighting right get the angles right yeah uh, imagine what that scene is going to look like in the dark when that fox walks through um oh the planning that goes in is yeah too, and it's phenomenal took, it took me i think it was two months to get a camera trap shot of a fox which i had re reintroduced back into the wild it was it had been rehabilitated and we released it and it was used to human presence <laughs> And it still, still took two months to get the shot. Amazing. Um, so yeah, these things aren't straightforward. They're not. No. And so with these films, these these twenty one mm. films, is mm. there kind of a set length? Is there already a, a platform that they're planning to release these on? And how can we um, yeah, go so about finding them when they're uh, out? so they're going to be um, out very soon? So we're recording this in January twenty twenty. Um, they're going to be online, um, mainly on the back from the brink youtube channel Great. um 
So they'll be on over, I think, the next few weeks. We'll be starting to release them, I think, one at a time, really. So, um, Are they short? What's the Short films, so average length's about four minutes. Oh, right. Some okay. of them have pushed to about six. Because there's, there's single species stories and then there's some habitat stories. And okay. some of those habitat stories, there's so much going on and there's so many great species and so many great mini stories that you just can't cut it anymore. <laughs> you look yeah. at it and you think, wow, we'd really have to lose something fantastic. So... Some of them are up to about six minutes, but the idea is to just try and keep them punchy, keep the interest there. Um, but they'll be they'll be out throughout the first quarter of 2020. So so they're basically back from the Brink YouTube channel. Um, great. But, yeah, yeah, we can also put it in in, Thank in you. the links, no, the links etc. Yeah. And then, uh, but the Back from the Brink website has information on there. I think there's a uh, Alex Hyde's photographs as well from uh, from all the projects are on. Uh, there's a link from there. But if people have searched for Back from the Brink, there's quite a lot of Good, uh, good coverage on on all the social platforms. Yeah. We'll do it. That's brilliant. And yeah. you know, this the, the idea is is trying to get, I suppose, British people excited about British wildlife. Absolutely. And that's you know, this there's so many layers to this, and mm. you know, the conversation can just really grow. But sure. thinking about this turning good nature filmmaking in into action, and mm. you know, how how do we do that? How do we make a film? Where an audience goes, oh, you know, I'm going to sit down on, on a Thursday evening and, and, and watch this, and then nothing's going to change, you know, because the situation yeah. is is pretty serious in the UK. And is there any kind of sort of thread through these where people can get involved, people can act, um, and people you know can get engaged in, in in what you're showing them? Well, we actually at the end of every film we have that kind of call to action, really, that we got all of the presenters um, to really kind of lay it out and that's obviously the one of the the great things about doing online content as well as you can provide links and things like that but you know all of these back from the brink projects uh they're all being headed up by different charities so there are people like rspb bug life um you know butterfly conservation bumblebee conservation bat conservation a lot of these organizations who are who are leading these individual projects and they all have developed volunteering opportunities around um, around these projects, and some of that might be involved uh, in surveying. Some of those opportunities might be involved in um, in habitat management work. Um, but and then they've also developed opportunities to to come along and, and sort of artistic projects as well, just creating art, uh, artwork and other things ar around it. So it's, it's thinking a little bit more outside the box as well in terms of how people might want to engage with this stuff. Um, but at the end of each each film, there's a there's a more information and a direct, I guess, call to action that we've, we've scripted in with the presenters. Um, and then on top of that, we've got seven more films after these first 12 um, the seven. I know that doesn't add up to twenty one, but there were, there were there were two. Uh, we did two earlier in the summer, which were sort of instructional films about how to make a wildlife film and how to make uh, oh, a wildlife awesome. photo story. So those yeah. are online already. But the final seven are not. So, they're not necessarily directed exactly at the public, um, but they will be still out in the public domain. They'll still be on that channel. They're mainly focused at sort of, um, land managers and conservationists about this is how the teams are back from the brink are saving this habitat. So we're looking at the Gems and the Dunes project, for example, up on the Sefton coast in Liverpool. Uh, we're making a film about the steps they've taken to save that habitat and what they're doing so that in 
a year's time, five years' time, ten years' time, this film can still exist as a bit of a how-to guide. A bit of a blueprint. Uh, yeah, exactly. Hopefully that. And, and to be part of telling that story is also... Yeah, there will be people out there, members of the public, who will look at it, who that will make sense to, and they'll go, "Oh, that's that's really inspiring. That's quite cool. I, I, I want to be part of that." And if that inspires someone to get involved in saving British wildlife, then we'll, we've done our job. Yeah, that's brilliant. I mean, I'm inspired just hearing it. And uh, by the way, we for the listener, we haven't already spoken about this, so this is uh, <laughs> authentic. And I'm giving you an authentic reaction. It does sound like, yeah, it does sound really fascinating. Yeah. And um, perhaps you could just talk very briefly about. Wildscreen, what Wildscreen does, because there might be some people out there listening to yeah. this who, who who don't know what their role is in the so yeah, Wildscreen is a um, Bristol-based wildlife media charity, um, and they uh, they operate a the, the world's biggest wildlife film festival. Um, incorporated into that is photography. So if any photographers listening, uh, they should also check it out. But the opportunity there is to go and uh, go to Bristol. Um, and that's now going to be, I believe, every year. It has been always been every two years previously. But there, w- there will be a festival later on this year in 2020. Um, but to go and meet and learn from experts in the industry and Wildscreen really is kind of bringing the industry together in under one roof, as it were. Um, but they're also looking to branch out and, and run other events across the UK. They actually co-organized a um an event in France, I believe, over the summer uh, for women in wildlife um uh, filmmaking and photography uh, and they've they, they've been uh, absolutely um, it's about the forefront as well as of driving conversations around um, around the sort of the values in our industry as well and wanting to uh, just promote conversations around uh, for example at the last wildlife uh, wild screen uh, festival it was a plant-based food um, it was all available so um, just you know they they're a force for good in the industry. Yeah, this is uh, not just a movement that's you know going to yeah. come and see some nice yeah. wildlife films and see some great presenters. Like, exactly, and it's and it's run it's run by a small team and a small charity in Bristol. Um, but in the past, they they've um, they they really weren't originally sort of known for for running things like Archive, which was a um, uh, a, a resource of photography and uh and film clips which uh they would make available to uh, for educational purposes as well um but they're developing some new projects um all the time but um but they're they're as I said, a, a, a very small team very small charity uh who does fantastic things punches yeah. above its weight and deserves all our support yeah so definitely um we will also put links to to mm. wild screen no, and do. yeah not make the assumption that everybody knows <laughs> who they are but yeah absolutely fabulous and if you can make it down to um Bristol um, in October, I believe it takes place. It's uh, well, well worth a visit. Really, I'm, I, it's in my cal- you know, <laughs> my diary every Fantastic. year. Um, I wanted to talk. A, we can go a little bit back, but yep. you know, you've mentioned you know filming um, yep. a lot, and I know mm-hmm. you've kind of stepped away a little bit from photography. But um, most of your early career, you're focusing on stills. I mean, <clears throat> for good reason as well, because of the advent of digital photography and the capability we will have now of producing, you know, really good qu- uh, quality content for KHD. But, um, you know, your early career, um, you spent a lot of time uh, doing all sorts of various projects, but you actually studied um, photojournalism in here in London, right? Yeah, I did. Uh, so I did a publishing degree first in Loughborough. Um, with my undergrad degree, uh, which was actually came back to be quite useful at the time. It was a weird time to do a degree like that. Um, 
because I remember the, like the first week of that degree being told that the book would be dead in 10 years. <laughs> um, and um, yet here we are. Um, so that was a weird time because no one quite knew where this was going. Amazon had just been launched, but you know, social wow. media was only just kicking off. Facebook kind of existed yeah. a little bit. And was this um, a focus on is, uh, illustrative publishing? Or was this yeah, publishing? Publishing in general, in general, really. Right. So, um, But no one really knew what was going to happen. You know, E-readers had just come out. You know, Kindle was sort of a, just a new thing. Um, so that was interesting. And at the time, I think, kind of yeah, lost our interest a bit as a, as a group of, um, uh, of students. But it's amazing now how much of that's come back to actually be useful to me, the skills I learned uh, on that degree. And then, well, whatever it was, several years later, um, having worked in the, the environment sector, so I worked for the people like the Wildlife Trusts and um, BTCV and a few other conservation organizations over the, the following years in communications, um, then had an opportunity to um, to then do a master's degree, uh, one-year master's at, um, what was the old London College of Printing, London College of That's Communication. That's what it was called when, when I went there. Yes, yeah, yeah. so uh, University of the Arts now uh, down at Elephant and Castle. And I, I, I specifically chose that master's degree in photojournalism um, in London because um, I wanted to move myself away from the wildlife photography kind of bubble really and put myself outside of that learn in a kind of in a context where uh, I was rubbing shoulders with people who were uh, taking photographs in a, uh, a humanitarian um, situation or uh there's just influences from across the world um, in in all other kinds of genres of, of, of photography and photojournalism, uh, crisis photography, other such things, um, and street photography, and and things that put me outside of my comfort zone. Basically, I realised that um, I, I already knew at the stage, having done my um, uh, I did my my field guide training in South Africa back in 2005, and I learned a lot about wild dogs then. Um, and I realized I wanted to use my photography to help wild dogs. And so when I decided to do my master's, wild dogs, was, that was my main project that I was going to start. And that became a, whatever it was, a, I think a three or four year project in the end on, on African wild dogs. But the start of it was- And on a book. The, and a book in yeah. the end, exactly. And um, oh, well, that's how I met my wife through, because of being a wildlife <laughs> photographer of the year, because of that wild dog image and everything else. So there's you know a huge amount of, um, yeah, uh, I guess history there in my own um, my own sort of career and uh, path started there with wild dogs, but that initial seed was sown back in two thousand and five. Carry that forward to two thousand and ten when I did my masters, um, and I realised that to deliver the the uh, the messages I wanted to deliver to the wider world and make people aware of the crisis facing wild dogs, I I couldn't just do that on a high speed motor drive with five hundred mil lens and go around just doing lots of nice pictures of wild dogs i needed to get in, understand storytelling i needed to uh, get a wide angle lens on there and uh, it's almost like the lens choice kind of forces the relationship you yeah. know the longer the lens you further the further away you are from the subject and but, i i've also found over the years as well there's a lot of wildlife photographers i think who kind of who hide behind a long lens sure um they don't want to engage with anything or anyone that, that um <laughs> really ends of hide behind a you know the longer lens the, the better um and and hey like that's not a criticism because i was at that stage largely doing the same thing but the reason i chose to go and do my masters in london was because 
it meant that I had to do a module on street photography. Mm. I had to, it was horrendous. I had to go walk around and get photographs of people in the street and so not ask permission, ask, you know, ask for forgiveness, permission afterwards and ask for forgiveness. And, and it, <laughs> it taught me how to work around people, how to light people quite close up. And that I then was able to carry that into a, a setting in a conservation setting where there are people doing the work that they do on the front line, saving species, whatever they're doing, surveying, tracking, and I could work around them in a in a way where I was doing justice to their efforts, um, and that that transformed me as a photographer. And and I think that you know, particularly as if you're interested in wildlife, and you grow up being fascinated by species and spending time in nature. A lot of the time, you're actually avoiding people. And to 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 be a good conservation photographer. First and foremost, you've got to get comfortable working around people. That's right. Um, and I think also to be a good conservationist, you have mm, to be comfortable yeah, and 100%. deal with people. It's yeah. not just about animals. It's all about the relationships. Yeah. And you can't conserve animals without being engaged with the people that live around them, that are working with them. Absolutely. That are hunting them, yeah. that are you know, eating them, that are doing all sorts of bad things. You need to engage everybody. Yeah. I think it's been at the... Um, it's also been at the heart of the decisions I, I've made as a photographer. Uh, there are there are quite a few photographers and filmmakers out there, or presenters, as it were, who who there seems to be this attitude of um, yeah, thank God I'm here with my camera. Don't worry, <laughs> you're all safe. Hey, the species has got a future because I'm here. Everyone, don't worry, it's okay. And it's it's just bullshit, really. Um, excuse the language, but it's it's also rude to the people who have actually spent their life trying to save that species and for me i've always wanted to do justice to what those people do whether it's saving rhinos pangolins wild dogs whatever it might be um but there are people who who are working tirelessly sometimes when i say every day literally all hours of of the day they don't have weekends they don't have holidays and to sort of to rock up and assume that because you're there all of a sudden everything's going to be okay um, is is just ludicrous. Um, so it, it's always just been about respecting what those people do and having respect for, for their work and their space and doing justice to them and, and, and making them, it's not about trying to make them look like heroes, but it's just about making them, humanizing them, uh, allowing people to connect with them, but also really hopefully allowing people to go, wow, that person is doing a great job um, under difficult circumstances sometimes as well and um, that's what I've always have tried to do with, with with my work and I think again just the attitude of um, you know 40 years ago when there were five photographers running around the world with long lenses saying <laughs> hey it's alright hey look I got this picture of this species that no one else has got before yeah it was you could do that that was a valid argument for being a conservation photographer nowadays we've got to work smarter and we've got to be aware that that storytelling and, and respect um, are part of the parts of the job, and and you can't just kind of rock up and take a photo and assume your job's done. You've got to create characters. Um, you've got to uh, develop empathy, um, but you've got to be respectful. And do you think there's room here to influence? You know, when you talk about you know the showing the passion that people that are working tirelessly in conservation are doing 
that somebody looking at that picture or somebody reading that story because there's that person who is for all intents and purposes an ordinary person um doing this job that someone can look at that and go hold on a second i i could do that or that's you know that's something that Mm, having that that engagement um showing that story in in a in a creative way is is can be an influence 100 percent um you know we see it all the time i think one of the it's one of the drivers behind, I think, the diversity conversations at the moment in the conservation world in this country um, is is that people put on the TV or open magazines and don't see people that look like themselves. Um, of course, you know that's yeah, just, well, it depends what your background is and where sort of where you are in the world in terms of um, your view on 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 that and whether or not you're inspired by what you see uh, and by the people that that you're looking at on pages of a magazine or on, on a television. But but that's effectively the point. Um, you're absolutely right. Um, the the issue really there is just being able to sort of humanise these people and inspire someone to say, you know what, you know, you can, you too can do this. This is just another person. It's another human being. Um, and of course, there are people who just who don't really care about the person behind it all. They just want to see an awesome picture of a lion, or a, they want to see a picture of a gorilla, or a touching moment between a mother elephant and its calf. And that makes them want to give money or to give time or whatever it might be. They want to help that conservation effort. Of course, that's and, and th- that exists. Um, and there are people out there, and then there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's just it's about understanding that there are different audiences. But there are people who don't respond to pretty pictures of wildlife and beautiful moments and you know, hard graft scenery, uh, so uh, sequences. Um, where you know, we've spent 17 hours trying to get this footage, and they, people just go, and uh, and so, but why? But why does that make it special? Why should we say that? Uh, uh, um, when you then show the people behind it, the human effort behind it, it helps people to connect to it. Um, it is that kind of that person. Oh, that person's like me, or oh, um, uh, particularly when you can show people who not dressed in camouflage or holding a driving a land rover or holding a, a rifle or whatever when you can also show people who might work on the front line of conservation but you go a little bit more behind the scenes and i think someone like adrian stern for example who who did uh, uh, a great body of work around pangolins um, um but but worked to to capture some of the moments of those individuals who were working hard um on the front lines of conservation, but also had real lives away from it, uh, and that it, it was just a different way of telling that story. And I, and I think it's changing all the time. Uh, people are getting, I think, sort of slightly switched off by the whole camouflage and a rifle thing <laughs> um, in conservation. There's more to it than that. And actually, some of these some of these real people on the front line, um, if you can if you can make them seem even more like human beings, and uh, then that helps people to be inspired yeah, to want to and that's just, to be honest now also we're seeing conservation efforts by charities people like your WWFs of this world about sponsoring rangers um rather than rather than giving yeah, money to yeah. save the rhino they're saying hey you know you t- you can help this guy who's who's out every day on the front line and he has a family and and this is his job um this is who he is here's a short film and and those have become very, very powerful. So, so we have to, absolutely have to give the, the time and the respect to those uh, to those stories as much as we yeah. do the, the wildlife. And I think you know you're talking about the the change is is very important because 
that's what's happening. It's what has to happen as well, because the long lens, pretty picture of the lion. And of course, it's not a criticism because it's it's still an important picture to take. And if people are getting a great deal of satisfaction out, out of it, that's brilliant. But you know, if you had this conversation with Joanne in the last podcast, mm. and you look at the shift with you know the major competitions, wildlife photographer of the year, pointing much more towards conservation, wild screen exchange pointing much more towards mm. conservation and also i think just the very fact that we're just just drowned in images you know on social yeah. media my goodness you just you can just scroll through we've we've all become expert editors you, know, you can just scroll mm. through thousands of thousands of pictures and that you do have to do something think about something differently photograph it differently tell that story differently because you like you say we are all photographers now and whether that's be- with a high-end DSLR or with a with a smartphone, we've got the capability of doing it. And I, <laughs> I can't remember the figure off the top of my head, but for um, a lecture I did with my students at Falmouth University recently, um, I I did a quick, what you would call I guess a back of the fag packet calculation mm-hmm. um, of how many photographs of lions must be taken in the Masai Mara every year, <laughs> based on my knowledge of the number of. Uh, or the estimated number of camps. I mean, you know, how many camps are actually in the Mara now? I think we lose count. Um, and then the number of vehicles and you know, bed nights and all this kind of stuff. And even if you're just taking a photo on your phone and it never go, it goes online, just the fact that, again, I can't remember, but it was in the millions. And you think, wow, okay, just we... It's not about don't take photographs of lines. That's not a... You know, they're, they're awesome and they're wonderful species to spend time with and to capture those things. But those 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 moments and those memories um but just also being being clear about what your ambitions are before you go out and shoot like are you are you genuinely trying to go out and do something that's never been done before are you going out to try and um document a, a conservation cause or are you just going on holiday and there is nothing wrong with photographing for the sake of photographing it's 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 part of our connection to the natural world so many of us just if, if if we're out shooting and I, I don't get to do this enough anymore and i'm yeah. sure you probably know what i mean um you know so so often nowadays you're not actually photographing wildlife without a, either a commission in mind or a shot you're not in doing mind. it for leisure are you exactly <laughs> but 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 it, when you do get the chance to do it it's so it's so much fun and it's so relaxing because also it's for me it's part of that connection with the natural world it's it's, it's the same as Bird watching with binoculars, or I, I, well, I, I hesitate, hesitate to say that that I'm, I'm I'm an artist. I haven't literally picked up a a, a pencil or a or, or a paintbrush in years, but but I used to yeah. uh, enjoy painting and drawing uh, wildlife as well. And it's it's all part of that connection. And yes. it has been, of course, it's been a, a part of our uh, DNA for for obviously forever. You know, if you look back at the the artwork that's on cave walls around <laughs> around the world. Um, so capturing these moments and creatively is is of course part of who we are. So we should never stop that. It's just about being honest with ourselves about like actually what's what why we're we doing it and what's necessary and looking at what's out there and saying okay, how can I do this differently to what other people have done? Is there a need for me to be here and to take this? And I think more and more now as we're becoming aware of our carbon footprint and do we need to go to Svalbard just to take pictures of polar bears when I've not got a commission or uh, when thousands of other people are out doing it. And again, there's no 
I don't want to say there's a right or wrong there. It's just yeah. it's just about being honest with yourself about why you're doing and it. And you're not coming from this is you know from a position of superiority or privilege. No, it's just no, a no. conversation. Yeah. Because it has shifted. You yeah. know, Pete Absolutely. Cairns when he spoke at yeah. Wild Screen Festival um, two years ago, you know, he talked about this picture of a polar bear that he was embarrassed about. And yeah. you know, it was a lovely picture. It was a lovely way to open his talk, but it was just simply because it wasn't doing anything. And he mm. was a photographer or is a photographer that's really interested in doing things with his pictures. Absolutely. And I think that's ultimately what we are. You know, we are communicators. And yeah. if you can communicate what you're trying to get across in the best and clearest way possible, then you've really done done your job. Um, and also this, I think, you know, we the word conservation photographer gets banded around a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think there's, yep. you know, there's 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 comes a pressure with that. And for photographers that are starting out, younger photographers or even photographers that are not necessarily young but changing career. Mm. Oh, I've got to be a conservation photographer. And mm -hmm. it's just, you, you know, and it might be that you do want to go to Svalbard or Masai Mara, mm -hmm. and that's fine, even if you're just practicing and, yeah. and, 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 and honing your craft, because of course that kind of thing is also really important. You have to be technically accomplished and know what you're doing. Oh, yeah. 100%. Um, but yeah, this, this, I think the idea of doing something close to home, which we've discussed, you know, also mm -hmm. lots on this podcast is, is much more exciting. You know, how can you make, you know, arrowhead ants you know, yeah. look engaging and you know telling the telling the story of this incredible species it's challenging um but it's, it's there are so many stories i mean if anyone's listened to this here in the uk you know there are so many stories uh out and about but we have this this sort of preconception that you know all the best stuff is overseas um and don't get me wrong of course i'm very privileged to have grown up in in africa um and it's the wildlife I've grown up with, so I care about it. So with the reason why I've worked on rhinos and pangolins, it's particularly you spent seven years on rhinos. It's not because, hey, they're a big iconic species that I want to go and uh, be known for. It, I grew up watching rhinos recover from the last poaching crisis and to see them being decimated, um, it, it hurts. It really does. Um, and to, to think, okay, how can I communicate about this? How can I be part of that that conversation? That that was what drove me, not because I wanted to go to Africa and do do the cool thing. And hey, it's all right, guys. I'm here with my camera. <laughs> um, so that's that's why I worked in Africa. And I, even even now, basically here in the UK, I'm trying to reduce the amount of time I spend in Africa, which actually again equally hurts because it's where I feel at home and it's the wildlife I, I love and grew up with. But there are. I made this decision to move away from a lot of uh, African projects because I, w I just realized that, you know, there, there are species here in the UK. You mentioned about the biodiversity of uh, crisis here at closer to home. There are species here that need our help far more than the rhinos do. Uh, yeah. And there are so many stories and so many projects and so many um, uh, subjects if just within a few miles of of our homes um across all across the country and you know whether that they might not be big mammals um but but even then just actually getting out and finding out where your nearest badger set is or uh, your your fox den and um have you got foxes coming into your garden at night or are they in your local park um it's it uh, you can practice as a photographer it should you find you can find 
subjects that can challenge you, uh, does it make you look closer at what's going on beneath our feet? Like I said, you know, looking at what the ants were doing um, uh, with the uh, in the relationship there with the spider. Um, it, it's that it's I, I'm looking closer at, at, at the wildlife yeah. around me, but we. I don't just think it's also uh, it, it's a it's a solution for the number of photographers who come to me, particularly young photographers, and say, "Oh, I can't afford to go to Africa. I can't afford to go to the Arctic, and I can't afford to go to these places." Well, a one solution is okay, go and find something closer to home because there are, believe me, there are yeah. just thousands. You should of say, "Good, stories. I'm glad you can't afford it." Yeah, because but the, <laughs> well, the, the other the other thing, genuinely, is also well, okay, um, that's <laughs> the species here that that or the habitats that we that we have closer to home, they need our help. They need us to celebrate them. We don't do enough of it. We are starting to see a little bit more of a shift um, towards celebrating the species here uh, in the British Isles, but but it's still not enough. And it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to, um, to let's face it, tell stories that haven't been told before. How many times do you, have you had a conversation with an editor or with someone who said, oh, that's been done? Well, okay, how many times have you gone and spoken to uh to them about a british species that no one else has ever heard of well you you know just it, it's I, I can tell you now i've 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 filmed and photographed species this year that i didn't even know existed wow so um <clears throat> yeah there are opportunities there to go and have those conversations with editors film commissioners whatever what um and and say how about a how about yeah, the narrow-headed ant, for example. Yeah, but exactly. It, and know, also, we're in it. You know, we're in an age where you know, these 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 editors are, are dealing in you know print and digital media, yeah. and they need content. Yeah, you know, it's yeah, a surprising thing. I think often often people can be put off because there are, I guess, seemingly few big outlets for photographers to get their work published, and magazines are only producing yeah. you know, twelve issues a year, and they've got so you know they they obviously they do have a lot of content, and it's still competitive. But there will be space for mm. unusual stuff i mean you can imagine editors must get bored of, you know of the same stuff coming on their desk it's, every single yeah day. it's interesting i mean obviously i'm um I'm, I'm in a fortunate enough position to kind of see what comes across the desk to uh to my wife sophie who's a um magazine editor but also uh, has been a uh, photo editor for a, few, for a few years now for uh, yeah. a platform in america um called biographic which is an online magazine and the interesting thing there, when they first got in touch with her, and, and I guess gave her the the, the brief for what they envisaged the, this this platform to be, was basically National Geographic, but without the National Geographic published <laughs> work. So we want it to be that level, we want it to be that interesting, but we want it to be kind of outside of that that bubble of stuff that's already been seen, sure. already being published, already been funded. We want to give a platform to people who are creating interesting and top quality work uh and uh and the stuff that hasn't been seen yet and um and they've they've covered some phenomenal stories some phenomenal species that we didn't know existed but it, to be honest it's been hard for sophie to find find wow. that content it's been particularly stories single images okay people can come across a moment or something that hasn't been seen before and get one shot but to actually you know stories there aren't that many in-depth stories about about different interesting that's amazing either, isn't it whether I mean, it's whether it's behavior we haven't seen or whether it's new uh new discoveries um it's it's she it's been really tough and it's and you know sophie has, an, has a phenomenal 
network of, of contacts across the photography world um, just through years and years of her work with BBC Wildlife, with uh, the Wildlife Talk of the Year and all the other competitions and magazines she's been <clears throat> involved with. But, um, you know, the storytelling is, is one of those things where it, we're still now just, we're still saying, I mean, when, when we talk to our students at Falmouth, you get out and tell stories because if you can put a good story together, you know, editors are still screaming out for it. It's You'd amazing, think that isn't a, it? Yeah. In this day and age with a huge amount of content that's kicking around, you go on Instagram, there's loads of pictures. Everyone seems to be taking more pictures than ever. But the 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 stories that actually are shot to a level of uh, you know, in-depth, but also of, of quality that can create that empathy, create that interest, can create that, that kind of inbuilt call to action that makes someone go, okay, I want to find out more about this. I want to know how I can be part of saving this or I want to just do something or, or, or help the, 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 the guys on the front line who are fighting to save the species. Um, there, there, there aren't that many stories out there. It's, right. and it's, it's, it's mind blowing really, yeah. isn't it? You, mm. you think that just, you know, but, it, but then it's, it's a sign of the a sign of the times because to be honest, you know, getting access to stories like that takes time. Um, and it's you know we, we've seen obviously you com- almost a complete I say we've not just seen a reduction we've seen almost a complete removal of of the, the concept of being commissioned in the photographic <laughs> world um, you know the commission doesn't really exist that much anymore yeah and if you do it's usually for a one day or two day shoot or for a, one event something that's happening and and that's not enough to tell the story the story needs to evolve of and course or the commissioner the commissioner has you know budget for one day but really yeah, it's a, a exactly. 20 day story exactly and um so it relies on people putting in that time and putting in that effort but um but it is possible and i think that kind of leads on to what we we're talking about with about foxes earlier as well and you know, we've, we've both done fox work um here in the uk and you know for me when i started my my fox story um you know, I I just sold my long lens because <laughs> I needed it for paying my bills. Um, and I was I was broke. I had come back from Africa with a number of I had commissioned work, but it was it was payment on publication and yeah, you know, not not much and nowhere near enough to to kind of cover <laughs> cover the cost of, of shooting some of these stories. But um, yeah, I, I sold my long lens and and I needed a a story close to home that I could do over a prolonged period of time and dip into you know consistently but yes. not try and shoot it all in a week or two weeks but just go back to it gradually and i shot that fox story over four years yeah it's amazing um, it? i think that's really important for people to hear as well you mm. know talking about being broke because it's another thing that you know we don't often discuss as, as yeah. photographers yeah. in this yeah. holy grail of being professional but you know you said to me when we first spoke that you mm. can count the number of photographers making a really good living on, on one hand and i think yeah. It's really, I mean, you know, you're a world press winner, Neil, uh-huh. and decorated with many winning shots in the Wildlife Photographer of the Year, all the major, you know, oh, grand title winner of the European Wildlife Photographer of the Year. And there you are selling lenses to, to put food <laughs> on the table, as yeah. it were. But it's... Um, what we're saying is I like, a, just get, yeah. don't, this is the wrong game to be in. Anyone wants to yeah. get into nature Look, photography. Yeah, I didn't get into this to make to make money, um, obviously, you know, we all have to afford to live, and that's that's kind of the thing that you seem seem to be kind of reminding people about is that you're not, you're not asking for payment because you you know you wanted to go on holiday. You're asking for payment because you need to you know keep food coming in and keep the electric on. Um, but uh, yeah, it's 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 tough. Um, it's been tough, 
when I, when I mentioned to you about, you know, about it's about the small number of photographers. What I mean by that is is people who are who are taking photographs and being paid to take those photographs and being paid good enough money to just but largely be photographers and yeah. sustaining themselves on photographic projects. It uh, seems like a pretty making. basic want and need, yeah, doesn't it? Exactly. Um, but you know, there are people who are photographers who are who are not plumbers or lawyers or whatever else and again there's nothing wrong with that um if that's how you fund your time as a photographer and there are, there are thousands of photographers out there who are very 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 good photographers getting work published who are funding their work in the field by 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 running other jobs um sometimes nine absolute nine to fives um yeah. and that's there's there isn't a right or a wrong and there's almost this kind of um shame in in admitting it which is i think we just need to get away from because to be honest it's part of that um it's it's part of what we do we, we if we there's a, there shouldn't be shame in admitting that you know what i a i don't know i mean i i, I worked in communications in the in the uh the, the wildlife media sorry the wildlife um, charity world for for many years while alongside also building up my uh, yes. my photog photography uh, career but that was to be able to afford to develop the conservation photo stories and projects that i felt were important that i wanted to communicate about and if that meant me slaving nine to five and then getting home and working from seven at night till three in the morning and then going back into work again the next day at nine in the morning um and making myself largely ill from, <laughs> from doing it but but that there's there shouldn't be any shame in that yeah. and we should be saying you know what i'm prepared to i should be proud to be able to say that's the length i went to and i did um I was I was you know doing that for for many years, um, and people should be absolutely congratulated for doing that. So I think I think people a should be able to talk more more openly about that. Um, and also, um, mm. yeah, Eddie, another I keep sort of plugging guests on these on these mm. podcasts, but um, Eddie, who I spoke to in an earlier podcast, yeah. he he works with photographers and mm. he's a mentor, um, a, a book specialist. Yeah, and he said this great thing to me, which was you know the happiest photo, and he's worked with yeah. all sorts of photographers, um, you know, big names, and published mm. really you know serious books as a commissioning editor. And he said that the happiest photographers that he worked with yeah. are the ones that are not professional. Yeah. And also nowadays, you know, what is professional? What is a professional photographer? I mean, I guess it's. I think it's so. It's a term we almost again could probably have to kind of just disregard, um, because also now what is being published? <laughs> because you know, like fundamentally, does something if something's in print, does that mean you've been published? Okay, you, nowadays you can be published in print, but you might not have been paid for it. But you could have been paid for being online. So again, these lines have become so blurred. But I also know of. A lot of amateur photographers, and again, I'm purposely using the term in the context of the conversation okay. to differentiate between people who are supposedly professional because they basically make the majority of their income through photography, and amateurs who maybe they have a nine to five and they basically photography is their weekend work, but or their holiday work. And I know some sort of supposedly amateurs who have probably got greater ethics um, and uh, and a greater drive to. To, to do meaningful work and to treat their subjects uh, with with respect that, um, and their other photographers, I think, with respect as well. I think the the drive to be a professional photographer nowadays is uh, it can mean that sometimes there's the the egos, the um, <laughs> the million the, followers on Instagram. Oh, or, yeah, I think, I think and you've, you've mentioned Pete Cairns, who is someone I have a huge amount of respect for. Um, and 
you know, I, I love the, the time I get to spend with him. Um, and, and he's been very supportive over the years. And uh, the, the term he used years back when we were talking about um, <laughs> what the conversation, it doesn't really matter, but the term he used was dick measuring. Um, <laughs> yeah, so to, quote, to quote, to quote him. <laughs> um, but that's, that exists in, in, in the professional world of, of, of photography. Um, you know, this, this sort of, I'm more worthy than you. Yeah. Um, and, oh no, I'm doing this story and, uh, you know, this is my location that, oh, come on. Um, so, and there's sometimes the drive to get the images, um, can, can lead people to step over the edge of what's acceptable in terms of ethics. And it's happened. It's happened with National Geographic photographers that, that we all know the names of. Um, and yeah, I just, again, I don't think that this kind of, there should be this differentiation between sort of professional or amateur or whatever, because to be honest, um, you know, it's the lines are so blurred, but also I, I wouldn't say that there's any shame in not being a professional. And similarly as well, sometimes there are some supposedly professionals who I would be embarrassed to, yeah. to uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, I guess, identify myself alongside. <laughs> but is there a, I was curious now that you've told, well, told the audience that, you know, you had to sell a lens to yeah, yeah. pay the bills. Did, was there a happy ending to the story? Were you able to save up enough money again to buy? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. well, actually, I made a profit in, on it in the end because I sold it for, I don't know how much. I sort of sold it for and then managed to buy it back. Oh, brilliant. Uh, not well, the same one, but the same, well, exactly the same model, but not the actual same lens from the same guy, but uh, managed to buy it back for cheaper than what I sold it for. Good for so, you. And actually, I bought it. It was the 400 2.8, so okay. you know, quite a yeah, significant so It's like lens. putting a deposit down on yeah. a house. Yeah. Although <laughs> I bought, I bought the, the original one I bought was just before the financial crash. And within, I think because Canon at the time, I think they were basing their, um, I think Japan had just gone through a financial crash and I think then Europe was going through it. And I think they based their, um, the Japanese-based company, Canon, they they based their, uh, their pound uh, prices on Europe. And Europe was heavier hit uh, than than the UK was at the time. And I think within a month of me buying that lens, it doubled in price. Wow! Um, or it, I it was at least one hundred. I do remember that time. It just yeah. shot through the roof, and I thought, "Wow!" <laughs> I've got a three hundred two point eight, yeah. and I bought it for in for three grand in two thousand and six. Yeah. And you look at the it's, it's double yeah. that now. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I mean, that was that was pretty much. What I mean, it's uh, yeah. I still have the original one. It's heavy as, but at the same time. <laughs> You know, it's it's the image quality is fantastic. That's I definitely brilliant. don't buy into the need to kind of go around to upgrading lenses all the time, upgrading no. cameras because it's it serves the purposes. It's still taking some fantastic images. Absolutely, and that's one of the things that you know we 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 struggle with as photographers, and particularly in the in the, in the nature of photography mm. and slash conservation world, is there's not big budget. So how how do you afford the gear, the software? You know, mm. you're you're getting a delivery of a new computer this week you know a cool two and a half grand i mean maybe that is a question how do you how how you, you, i'm assuming that your income is very diverse well, it's it is diverse i uh so it's uh, i'm fortunate enough to to work at Falmouth university and to to be on the lecturing team there on what i think is the most exciting um course in that genre um because we're covering photography and filmmaking um and and I, I do a lot of a lot of work there during term times. Um, lead some trips uh, with the students as well, going to Cairngorms um, every year. And you know, we were talking about other 
uh, other potential uh, trips like that, leading workshops and, and things. Uh, so that's that takes up quite a bit of my time. Obviously, doing this this back from the brink work with uh, with Wildscreen. Weirdly enough, there might you know overall it seemed like a, a large amount of of money when you when you look at I me. Mean, then you divide it by twenty one films, and <laughs> I think it was four photographic projects as well that I had to deliver as part of that. And you divide it up, and you go, ah, okay. It seems like a lot of money on the surface, but realistically, it's it's it when divided up and. You know, when other members of the team have been paid, it's um, yeah, yeah and that's it's, it. it's very small. It's probably not um, worth looking at what you're getting paid per hour. No, it's <laughs> not. It's I, tried avoid, I tried to avoid looking at that. Um, and then, yeah, there's the occasional uh, magazine piece, um, the odd uh, additional sort of filming day here and there that I'm doing. Um, so, you know, things keep coming in. And, you know, it's, it's never, I think it's one of those things. I was. I start my. I, I do a session about competitions with my students at Falmouth, and I. Uh, I always start with the list of photo competitions that I was awarded in last year, or so now two thousand eighteen, and I sort of show them the full list. How much money do you think I made from all of these? <laughs> and people, oh, thirty-five thousand, ten thousand, and literally um, up until the very, very, very last one on that list, it was zero. It was nothing at all. And the final one was a thousand pounds or a thousand euros, I think it was. It's incredible, um, isn't it? And so, yeah, no competitions are not not you don't do it for the money. Um, no. it's it's that. It, well, for me, it's always been about it being an extra, um, an extra platform, because certainly the big competitions, especially I mean, if you look at what happened with that Rhino image around World Press, I mean, I've kind of lost control of that that image now, which is great, and that it's now it kind of exists in its own entity. Bigger, it's bigger than me now in terms of my reach around around the world. Um, it's been seen by millions of people, which is, that's why I enter those competitions. Um, yeah. Of course, there's there is that little bit of oh, I really hope I get something out of this. That'll be nice. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. And that's good. You know, you're not. A, you're not a robot. You know, completely yeah. emotionless. You're purely no, doing it. No, yeah, it's nice to be. It's nice to be recognised. But the thing is, as well, there there is a business point to that in that it. If it can keep you relevant, it means people see your work and they go, "Oh, that's cool." Um, let's make a note of his name, and maybe we'll talk to him about doing some work in the future. And particularly if you get the chance to go to some of these um, either festivals or award shows that are around these competitions, you get to have conversations with people who actually might be interested in you and your work. So it's it allows me, and has done over the years. Like I said earlier on, it, it allowed me to meet my meet my wife um <laughs> years ago from having an image in wildlife talk for the year um and you never know where these 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 things are going to take you um but yeah definitely not for the money so in terms of the financial sort of breadth um of uh of, of my portfolio i lead the occasional photo tour as well yeah. i'm a i'm a, I'm a professionally qualified guide in in south africa and i don't keep up with the the the, the qualification but i went through the, the guiding qualifications and it's something i bought into and spent a bit of time working in the bush there but um i guess it kind of ties in with the same approach to my work in falmouth in that i i i value helping others understand and interpret the world around them and in, whether that's if that's in the bush and understanding the wildlife that they're that they're looking at uh, and enjoying it and getting more out of it then great or if that's looking at a camera and then getting something out of it and understanding how to make it work um, and what to do with it and what to do with their career and their life, then again, that's, that's rewarding for me. Um, but I try, there's a reason I don't, I, ne I never got into doing photo tours. Um, 
it's a long time I've had many opportunities to to work with a number of um, to tour companies and operators. Yeah, because um, it can be very lucrative. It can be. It mm. absolutely can be. Um, and you know, I I do enjoy this that side of it. Like I said, I enjoy working with people um, and and helping them to to get the best and to enjoy it. And and certainly from my side as well to bring where possible an additional conservation element to to their sometimes holiday um their photographic holiday and you get to kind of show them maybe a different style of photography or look at the world in a slightly different way that's again even more rewarding for me but um it's a lot of time away to be honest um and it's time away from what i saw as my core work my core work was uh the 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 photo storytelling uh, the photojournalism, uh, the conservation work, and yeah, it was, it, that was a decision. But you know, I still run the occasional, yeah, occasional trip. That's yeah. great. Mm. And so we've, um, I mean, there's some fascinating digression from you mm. know your younger days of studying and mm. photojournalism and your work uh, with foxes. Encourage everyone to check out um, Neil's website. So it's a rich. There's lots of content on there and a, a, a really fabulous style. And you. you can, I think, I think it's evident the the craft and. Um, the skill that's gone into some of those pictures, and we actually we were talking earlier about your your fox work, mm. which is which is fantastic, and putting yourself in in the kind of firing line of you know angry people yes. on red coats and packs of hounds yeah. and stuff. But there's a, a, a fantastic not your you know I mean I I think it's really interesting with my own work shooting mm. foxes in an urban setting. It's it's a very very different mindset you need and it's a very different head you have to have on doing that style of photography so it's fascinating to see your take on it and have you kind of have you sort of wrapped this up are there other pictures that that you'd like to get in the fox project in the fox project yeah um have you thought about doing some film work around them have you done any um i don't want to give too much away because there's something which is quite current there's a new bit of kit that i've got which is going to allow me to hopefully do something that um, I've been wanting to do for some time. There's a few people around me. Okay, who, we can uh, keep that quiet, but it's sort of tantalising the yeah. audience. They can, yeah, yeah. it means yeah. they have to stay in touch. You'll with You'll see the relevance of it if anyone's uh, anyway, whatever. Just keep an eye out, basically, because <laughs> I will share it if I if I can achieve it. But largely, it involves urban foxes. Yeah, um, I'll tell you after. This. <laughs> um, but it's 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 a bit of filming. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm quite lucky that my my, where my mother-in-law lives down in um, down near, near Brighton in Shoreham, there's a really good urban fox population down yeah. there. They come through her property, so um, yeah, it's uh, it allows me to every time I go down to just think about ideas for shots here and there. But to be honest, I've largely wrapped up the wrapped up the story. Yeah, there are I shot something new a few months ago, which um, was was something I it was. I had all kinds of plans for that story, things involving um, uh, models wearing um, fox coats and hats okay. and things like that. And um, it's, it's one of those things that sometimes, you know, these ideas, you just don't get the chance to shoot it, particularly when it's a self-generated project and you're doing it. And I, the Rhino work kind of took over our lives and I just didn't have the chance to to, to really explore this, these other areas I wanted to with the fox work. Um, but we did we did a, uh, a sort of a shoot of this this fox coat that I'd I'd actually got through somebody in my family and um, and we kind of shot it and people I think will 
we shot it with my students as, as actually as a lighting workshop at Falmouth. So we put it in a studio and kind of set, it, set it all up. And um, so we, we shot it in that way. Um, I have... Um, I have a fox head in my in my shed, um, <laughs> which uh, I found because a fox had been shot on a field near where I live. Um, actually, found a couple of dead foxes locally, and that's it's, it's quite upsetting. I still haven't got to the bottom of, sort of what, how and where and who's doing it. But um, anyway, I, I thought well, also I'd quite like to to photograph the skull um, just to understand also the sort of the skull structure of it. And we were talking about um, actually Rose Summers earlier, one of my ex students, and um, yeah, I've been talking to her about actually doing a three D scan of it because she actually she scanned a um, if anyone searches for Rose's website, Rose Summers, um, she's three D scanned a, a seal skeleton. Um, wow. which is very cool. I don't know if anyone's been on the Natural History Museum website and seen the 3D scan they did of the whale right. that's hanging. I, I haven't seen it. So no. that's, you can you can explore it and zoom into it and go through it and round oh, it. And it's pretty cool. So she's um, using similar technology for that. Yeah, so she's used exactly the same technology, just on a smaller scale. But um, we've talked about doing the fox skull as well. So that's kind of, that's... A, a few small things for really really thinking like outside the box yeah <laughs> oh, just yeah. yeah just something that's kind of interesting and um and uh but yes the 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 ideas creatively that i've got next are, are largely largely urban um and largely in the filmmaking side of it but that's fine you can keep your cards close to your but chest. you'll see you'll, well, <laughs> well you'll see if it's if it's successful yeah I'll, that's right that's come right. back in a few years time and redo this and see but well this was the idea and we completely failed <laughs> <laughs> neil we're going to um mm. we'll take a short break there's okay. so much more um right. to talk about and i appreciate you've got to drive home in the dark no worries. But we will have a, a quick pause and we'll okay. come right back wow that was the quickest hour and 15 minutes. It just flew by. Uh, listening to Neil was so great, hearing his stories and getting such a good insight into his thought processes, his practice, and the way he approaches his work as a communicator. Whether that's stills, video, or as a presenter, I think it's something many of us forget when we're seeking out subjects to photograph or projects to focus on. You know, things like who are the audience? What is the story? And how can this be communicated in a succinct and simple way? So we talked to Lenf about Wildscreen and for good reason. This is an amazing organization supporting the best filmmakers, photographers, and conservationists to make compelling stories about the natural world. And it's a good time to bring them up too, as this year's dates have been announced for the festival in Bristol. It will run from the 19th and 23rd of October and will no doubt bring the world's best photographers, filmmakers, conservationists to give engaging and inspiring presentations and workshops. The festival is always in my diary and a must visit for anyone involved in natural history filmmaking field. And also they have some great competitions, namely the Panda Awards, which uh, I heard once was called the Green Oscars. But this is really the highest honor in international wildlife film and TV. And it's also the second outing of the Photo Story Panda Awards. It's a stills competition and was introduced in 2018 to recognize the craft of photography alongside that of film. The deadline for these awards is April 10th, so don't delay. Visit wildscreen.org, click in the festival tab for more info and guidelines of how to enter. Right, that's it for now. Part two of Neil's podcast will be released in a few days. 
So let your friends, family and wider community who may be interested in this know about these interviews. Don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. It really helps. Many thanks and see you soon. Thank you.